Good morning, church. It's Resurrection Sunday. It's the day that we get to celebrate the possibility of life in the midst of death. The thing I want us to hone in on today, that the, that the Spirit may give us a deepening sense of what the resurrection really means, and to be able to see resurrection actually budding up all around us. You know, when I first moved to Georgia, I had a strange experience. I woke up one day in late March to see uh, my entire street covered in a yellow, greenish, tinted like substance. You could see the tracks of cars who had driven down the road, almost like a snow-covered road. All over your car was this film, all over everything. And I'd never seen anything like it before. Green, snow-like pollen. And, and a thing that began to happen to my body that had never happened before, a reaction to said subject there, a reaction to the substance of the pollen that was in the air. In Georgia church, the reality of the resurrection is so strong that you can actually see it, that it actually physically affects everyone that comes into contact with the pollen. Life is waking up in creation as the pollen is being produced in such a powerful way that there's not a person that doesn't notice it. The death of winter has come and it has passed and the silent season of barrenness has produced an explosion of new growth. My hope today is that the resurrection of Jesus, that it wouldn't give you an allergic reaction, but that instead the resurrection of Jesus would be so potent in our hearts that it would cause a reaction, an awakening that you might begin to see new life budding up all around you. You know, most of the people... Most of the time, people come up to me and they say, hey, Ryan, it's, it's the week before Easter. I bet you're really busy. I bet you're really stressed out. Are you making big plans for Sunday? Are you doing special things? And it literally used to cause me anxiety in my soul. Like, like I began thinking, oh man, should we be doing more? Should we have more stuff going on? Should we uh, you know, have bigger music, a live skit, or possibly interpretive movement, but you know better than that, we're not bringing that back. Some things don't need to be resurrected. But I say this, a few years ago, what God showed me about Easter was this. You know, we want to honor our King well. We want to celebrate His resurrection well. But what honors His name more is not making Easter big, but making it long. I think it's a good aim for us today. What if we were talking about Easter on our summer vacation that will almost suddenly, almost certainly be in late July instead of early June? What if we were sitting around the Thanksgiving table this year, thinking back on the year and all the things we were thankful for, and we were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, we were remembering Easter then? That's our aim, church. That's what we're going after today, because here's the deal. Here's our big idea of where we're headed today. The resurrection is not merely something that happened for us. It's something that is happening among us. And we're going to examine the resurrection account from John's Gospel this morning, particularly pertaining to Mary Magdalene's experience with Jesus throughout her journey with Him. So let's dig into John chapter 20, and we're going to start by looking at verses 11 through 15. And here's, here's the first point I want to make. It's this, that resurrection 
is only good news for those who truly grieve the reality of death. In other words, if you don't think about death, resurrection is of no help to you. Let's, let's listen to Mary's encounter with Jesus. John chapter 20, verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. You see, Jesus had been married in a rich man's tomb. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph gave his own private tomb to Jesus that he was supposed to be buried in. And I think that's, a, that's really a picture of what the Christian life is. That Jesus is buried in the grave that we belong in. That's what Easter's about. And so even in his death and, and in his burial, we're seeing a picture of what resurrection would be and, and, and how Jesus takes our place. And here's what Mary's thinking. She's going to check on the body. She gets there to realize that the stone has been rolled away that, that, that covered the tomb that, she was, that he was buried in and that his body is missing. And, and here's her thinking. It's kind of this assumption that she makes. Someone has vandalized and tampered with the body of Jesus. If the cross wasn't bad enough, now here we have this. They've taken his body. How could this get any worse is what Mary's thinking. It's this worst case scenario thinking that, that Mary has. And, and the thing that I notice about this is that when you have this kind of worst case scenario thinking, this, this thinking that's filled with the reality of death without the hope of the resurrection, is that you don't have any room for the possibility of life in the midst of death. Her framework does not include the resurrection as a possibility. It only includes death. She's looking for a dead Jesus. And she's so tunnel vision on the fact that dead Jesus is not there that she cannot comprehend the possibility of a resurrected Jesus. She cannot comprehend the fact that Jesus is actually speaking to her because she's so locked in on death. So let's, let's look a little bit about Mary's story because I think it, it helps us understand why she is the way that she is when she encounters Jesus. Who is Mary Magdalene? Well, Mary, first thing you got to know is, is Mary is a really, really common name. There are several Marys mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, Mary's name, Mary of Magdalene. Magdalene was, a, was an area, Magdala was an area uh, that was off the western uh, coast of the Sea of Galilee, a little fishing town. There was a Magda, Magdalene, literally means tower. There was a, there was a tower there that, that uh, people remembered that village by, that town by. And so she was from there. And it was a it was a town that was that was known for their their sin. To be honest with you, um, and all all four accounts of the Gospels tell the story that the first person that Jesus encountered after he raised from the dead was Mary of Magdalene. But her story goes back a little deeper. Here's what we know from Luke chapter eight, verses one through three. 
Here's what we know about Mary. Soon after, Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve disciples were with Him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Mary of whom seven demons had gone out. Mary Magdalene was an extremely, extremely broken woman. She was a demon-possessed woman. I know that that gives us the heebie-jeebies in the church to talk about anybody being possessed by a demon. But it's what the Bible says. It's, It's who she was. It was her story. She was deeply influenced by the enemy. But then she met Jesus. And it changed her. Before meeting Jesus, she was just damaged goods. Mark 5 tells us another account of someone who was demon-possessed. The the Gerasene demoniac, the the guy from the the country of the Gerasenes, which was the other side of the lake, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I like to call him naked, bloody guy because it says that he lived among the graves and he was naked and bloody and people were afraid of him. Uh, And nobody could bind him. And so what we learn about that is that there's probably some similarities of that guy and Mary, socially speaking especially. She was probably like the the garrison demoniac, unstable and untrustworthy and isolated and certainly tormented from within. To those around her, she probably didn't even have a name. Instead, she was probably called the crazy lady. The one that you see and you walk on the other side of the street because she's not all there. But to Jesus, you know, she always had a name beyond her brokenness. Her illness did not define her, and resurrection was possible for her the way that Jesus saw her. There was another way of living that was possible for Mary of Magdalene. And it was a way that was her living in her right mind and even, church, contributing to the ministry of Jesus and providing for Jesus as he was on his journey of making disciples. Mary and other women cared for Jesus, provided for Jesus. Jesus depended on Mary and her companions physically, and Mary and her companions depended on the rabbi spiritually. You know, the women in Jesus' life are they're just so significant, and they often go overlooked. These were misogynistic times that Jesus lived in where women were sinfully marginalized and seen as subhuman at times. And that's one of the things that we see Jesus setting right even as he is making disciples throughout the world. We see him call the 12 men, but soon thereafter, even in John 4, we see him calling a woman at the well in Samaria. Early on in his ministry, Jesus was about the whole kingdom of God for the whole image of God. Mary loved Jesus because Jesus gave her life. Jesus drew the life out in her. He healed her and drew close to her even when she was so unbearable to so many people. So Jesus' heart was drawn to people who grieved at their status in this life. Jesus, you know, He's always been drawn to people who really hope this isn't all there is in life. 
Are you one of those people? Maybe this season in your life has reminded you that you were made for another place. You were made for another world. You were made for a more full life. About 10 days before all this happened, Jesus' friend Lazarus died just before he got into Jerusalem. And Mary and Martha, who were Lazarus' sisters, they buried him. You can, you can read about this in John chapter 11. So they're crying and they're upset with, with Jesus because Jesus gets the news and he says, you know what, I'm going to stay for a couple more days. I'm not going to go and heal him before he dies. I'm going to let him die. They can't make sense of this. Mary and Martha are irritated and hurting and broken. They can't make sense. So when Jesus gets into Bethany where they live, he gets into town and, and he goes and he meets with them. Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. In other words, he was as dead as dead can be. He smelled. He was lifeless. His body was cold. There was no chance that he was alive. And Jesus says to Mary and Martha and those that are around grieving with them, let me see him. And as they begin to walk toward the tomb, toward the grave, where Lazarus' dead, cold, lifeless body laid, he looks at Martha and he said, he's not dead. He's sleeping. I am the resurrection and the life is what Jesus told them. He, see, he led on to what he was going to be for them. I am the resurrection and the life. And as they're walking to that tomb, Jesus sees all of the people who are still grieving at the fact that their dear friend and family member Lazarus has died. And so Jesus says to them, quit crying, you bunch of babies. No, that's not what he says at all, is it? Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet Jesus says in this moment, he actually doesn't say anything. You know what Jesus does? He weeps. John chapter 11, verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus knows he's going to heal this guy, but Jesus weeps. So why does Jesus weep? Because death is cold and lifeless. Death must be grieved before resurrection can be relished. This is what Jesus was showing them. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. But if you don't grieve death, resurrection is pointless. Is that you today, church? Do you hope that there's more to life than this? Do you get the whiff of death all around you? Do you grieve at what has become of your life when you think about it? People who experience sickness, people who experience loneliness, who are broken and desperate. Do you grieve at those realities? Is that you? Because those are the people whose hearts are ready to receive the resurrection. For Mary, if Jesus was gone, there was no reason for life. The end of Jesus was the end of her. That's why she's grieving. That's why she seems hopeless. Because he had meant so much to her. Frederick Nietzsche, who was a German existential, existentialist philosopher who I wouldn't recommend for his theology, does have this great quote. He says this, Only where there are graves are there resurrections. I think it's helpful for us today. Only those 
who can sense the mortality rate of life on their own and grieve that reality are fit for the reality of resurrection. If we're not acquainted and haunted by death on our own, how could the gospel, the message that death is not all that there is, how can that possibly be good news to us? So Mary Magdalene, let's get back to her. She knew and had experienced a life apart from Jesus. She didn't even want to live broken and tormented. And she had experienced life in Jesus. And in this moment, her estimate of Jesus' claims that death would not be final for him were too small. She didn't have a category for resurrection. Church, do you have a category for resurrection? I'm not talking about the, the big day we celebrate. I'm talking about the long way we celebrate. In your day-to-day living, do you have a category for resurrection? That the, the death and the losses that you experience, little or big, are not all that there is to your reality and your story. The only way to know if you do is to stare into the face of the possibility of death just like Mary did, and just see how you respond. Because here's the deal, and 1 Thessalonians 4.13 is helpful in this. Living as a Christian in this world doesn't mean that we don't grieve. Some people think that it does. Some people think that grieving is not part of the Christian narrative. And they haven't read John chapter 11, verse 35, that says, Jesus wept. Our, our, our emotional health is so significant. When you look into the face of death and loss, Jesus welcomes you to grieve. But he welcomes you to grieve in such a way that has the possibility of resurrection. And 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says that this is that reality. That we don't grieve as those who don't have hope. Church, we grieve as those who have hope in the reality of the resurrection. So when you see the loss and you experience the death and it seems larger than the resurrection, Jesus invites us to get recalibrated by the power of His Spirit to open our minds and our hearts for the possibility of resurrection. And this is what He does with Mary. So let's go on to see how He recalibrates her heart to the reality of resurrection. This is our our second point here. We're going to be looking at John 20, 16-18. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus meets us in our grief, So we sit in that grief. Jesus meets us in it. Then he calls us by name and he shows us the way to life. Let's read it. Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus says to us, Rob, Terry, Megan, Holly, Amanda, Evan, Ryan. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher in Aramaic. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and He has said these things to her. Church, in the midst of confusion and grief 
in heartache, in death, Jesus draws closer to Mary just like He did to Lazarus and His companions in the sadness of death. And Mary Magdalene, her heart is recalibrated with one word. And it's her name. Mary. Jesus doesn't say, come on Mary, how long have you walked with me? I mean, you were there when I raised Lazarus. He doesn't say that. He sits in the moment with her and he says, Mary, Mary, I know your name. I know your past and I still know your name. That's good news to us, church, that Jesus knows our full story and He still calls us by name. Time and time again, we Christians realize that we're not as far as in our walk with God as we'd like to be. And you know what we do? We beat ourselves up. We condemn ourselves. We're self-deprecating around those in our community. But I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't do that. Jesus, in one word, recalibrates Mary's heart by reminding her of her identity. He recalibrates her soul with just one word, and it's her name. The way of life for any of us is to be reminded of who we are in Christ, to be reminded that we have a name that speaks over our life, and that's the name of Christ. But in the name of Christ, we also have an individual name that we are image bearers of God, made perfectly in His image. We have to be reminded of that. To wake up each and every day and see that because Jesus has risen from the grave, the grave that my sins dug for Him, that I'm not the same. Even though sometimes I act the same, I'm not the same. This is what Jesus is doing with Mary here. I'm not that crazy, demon-possessed lunatic I was before I met Jesus. I'm different. Church, you are not the sum total of your failures and disappointments and shortcomings in this life if you are in Christ. You're not just the guy without self-control. You're not just the alcoholic. You're not just the ugly one. You're not just the disabled one. You're not just the one that is broken beyond Repair. You have a name, and Jesus knows it, and it's the only way that you'll ever live in your identity in Christ is to know that His name speaks a better name for you than your name, but you have a name in Him. That's the only way that our hearts get recalibrated. The Israelites, when they were in exile, they were most certainly depressed. Every day was a reality that they had not lived up to the standard of what God had called them to be as His holy and chosen people. And so their punishment for their own sins was exile. To be displaced from the land that was connected to the promise that God had made to them. In Isaiah chapter 43, the Lord reminds him of their identity the same way that Jesus does with Mary. And here's what the Scriptures say, but now says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel. In other words, I know you completely. I know the whole story, not just the one on social media. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Listen to that. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. This is past tense. 
They don't feel redeemed in the moment. They're in exile. But, but the Lord says to them that there's something that's happened in eternity past, a plan that was made to redeem his people. It's past tense. I have redeemed you, even though you're currently in sin. I have redeemed you, and I've called you by name, and you are mine. So back to Mary. Mary, you've got to lift your eyes up from self to me. You can't just assume I'm some gardener coming to make the grave smell better and look better. You've got to see the possibility of resurrection. And Jesus is just so gentle when he meets with her, isn't he? He's so gentle with her. And what does he do? He says, Mary, things are not going to be like they used to be. They're going to be better. Because Mary's gut reaction is to cling to him. Jesus, you left me once. I don't ever want you to leave me again. But that's not what happens. Jesus says there's a bigger plan at place. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to have me forever, Mary. You're going to have me forever. And then he gives her the most meaningful thing to do. To be the first one to tell others about the risen and resurrected Jesus. Broken Mary, the first evangelist for the kingdom of God. Third thing I want to show you is that Jesus fills us with His life by His Spirit and sends us on a mission to share the possibility of resurrection to all the world. In other words, God calls us to something beyond ourselves and somehow that makes us cherish and savor Jesus more when we have meaningful work in His kingdom. We saw it initially with Mary. We see it with His disciples as well. Let's read John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he knew that they would doubt. So he showed them his hands where they'd been pierced and his side where he had been speared. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, because they didn't hear it the first time, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So what does Jesus do? He, he moves from Mary to his disciples. And they're locked away in a room somewhere in Jerusalem. And they're ultimately fearful of the Jews and what they're going to do to the disciples, the followers of Jesus. Because they saw what happened to Jesus just a few days ago. This is Sunday night, Easter night here. And just like Mary, they are living like Jesus is dead. They don't have a category for resurrection when Jesus first encounters them. And we do the same thing sometimes, don't we? We, we, we enter into a, 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 a circumstance or a conversation and we just assume that Jesus is dead, that things can't change, that it's always going to be the same. We live like there is no resurrection, don't we? It's when fear and hopelessness overcome us, even when it's momentary. But Jesus brings something to mind that he told them a few days earlier in the upper room. You see, it's Sunday night for them. It's Easter night. And Jesus had his meal with them on Thursday night, Monday, Thursday. And while they were in the upper room just before they went to Gethsemane to pray, Jesus told them this, and it comes from John chapter 14, verses 25 through 31. 
Because what Jesus is doing is reminding them of what he said to them. John 14. Jesus said this right before they left to go pray. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, also known as the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, here's what He will do. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In other words, that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He shows us Jesus. Verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives it. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. And here's why. Because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. He's going back to where He came from. And now I have told you before it takes place, disciples that will be sitting in that room on Easter night, fearful and afraid. I've told you this before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk with you much for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. You see, just in that moment, Judas and the Jewish officials were headed to find Jesus. Right as they were walking to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray like we talked about last week. So Jesus tells them, I've come to impart peace to you. And and peace is not just an absence of conflict, right? Because there was a holy conflict that happened on Good Friday. Peace is not just an absence of conflict, but it's it's a presence of holistic flourishing. In the Older Testament, the word for that is shalom. And it's it's holistic flourishing where everyone has an opportunity to flourish because God gives peace. That's what he's talking about here. He says, I'm going to tell you how the resurrection will be your story before it happens so that you may believe. I'm going to raise, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to send. This is why Jesus says, Mary, you can't cling to me right now. I'm going to send you the Spirit that will cling to your heart forever. I'm going to the Father, and what we're going to do is we're going to send you the Holy Spirit, which is God with you for all of eternity. It is God clinging to your heart until Jesus Christ returns and consummates creation. That's what the Holy Spirit has come to do, is to cling to us with God's Word, with God's people. Christ in and among us. It is Jesus Christ eternally present among us. The resurrection reality of every day. Easter is long, friends. It's not just big. So how does the Spirit awaken resurrection within us? By bringing, as John 14 says, all things that Jesus has told us in His Word and in His life and through His life to our minds and our hearts and making them bear and become a a reality that is true that not, that's not fiction, but it's true. And it's so true that we live out of that narrative. That's what Jesus came to bring to us through His Spirit. The world cannot give us peace because it does not have peace. If there's anything that we've noticed in these last four weeks, it's that. The world cannot give us peace because it does not have peace. Jesus Christ has peace because He is one peace through the, through the holy conflict of the cross he has imparted His love and His care to us for, throughout all of eternity through the power of His Spirit. And He does so by making this Word be true in our hearts. That's what He's saying here. 
Jesus has peace because he has one peace and he's with the Father in heaven and he sent us peace through the Spirit. And Christian, you are on a mission. If you are a Christian, you're on a mission. There is no such thing as a Christian that is not on a mission. Either you're a Christian and you're on mission or you're not a Christian. This is what he's telling us here. It's to extend peace to the world. And the message of peace is this, according to John 14, that you can be forgiven. That is the first thing that Jesus says about the message of redemption and peace. That it has to do with forgiveness. Because only forgiven people need a resurrection. It has to do with forgiveness. And and Jesus says to his disciples, you're going to extend my kingdom and build my church through the message of resurrection that sinners have hope. Let's pick back up just quickly in John chapter 11. I just want to show you a little bit more about the church's mission here. After Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he looks at everyone around the gravesite. It's just witness this. And he sends them on a mission. You see, Jesus could have healed Lazarus and he could have made him have his Sunday Easter suit on like I do, right? He could have walked out of the tomb looking all good in GQ like this. But he didn't. He sent him out of the tomb with grave clothes on. Strips of linen cloth as the scriptures say. And then Jesus looks to everybody who's just seen this and you know what he says in John eleven forty four: 44? Unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. Friends, the mission of the church is that by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be a people helping to unbind one another and let one another go of the grave clothes of this world. The grave clothes of our situations and circumstances that say there is no possibility of resurrection. There is no chance for life in this occurrence. Unbind one another and let one another go. That is the mission of what we're doing as a church community. We're helping one another walk in the resurrection day in and day out. And here's my prayer for us this Easter. That the resurrection of Jesus would not simply be historical knowledge for us, but that it would be a daily invitation that transforms our faith. Is the resurrection among us, church. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I thank you, Lord, for the gift of life that you have given to us. And Lord, there are many times that we miss the life that is budding up all around us because we are so hung up on the fact that the, re- that the reality of the resurrection couldn't possibly be true, just like Mary. And so, Lord, What we ask of you today is that you would make the resurrection of Jesus long, not just big. That we might be reminded every single day that eternity has broken in to this world. So Lord, wherever my friends are that are listening to your word this morning, May they know that there is hope in Christ Jesus because he's risen from the dead. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.